I know there's a bunch of people to my left over here will be glad when school is out, right? Right? Wouldn't you like to stay in summer school? No. It's not very enthusiastic. Well, you guys have to behave because my mother-in-law is sitting in front of you, so y'all be nice. Becca, just, just pop her if she misbehaves, okay? She has a tendency to get out of line. Well, we're going to have summer school this summer in here because if you take a look at the screen, you'll see the master teacher. Uh, we're going to take a journey through the study of the Sermon on the Mount through Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, 6, and 7. We're going to go verse by verse through this incredible passage where Jesus becomes the master teacher. And we're going to learn some aspects about how we are to practice being disciples. This is probably, I think, well, not probably, it is the largest, the most contextual type of, of, of script or scripture where the teachings of Jesus are all confined into one particular place. This is a single message where I believe under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew records for us almost verbatim the words that Christ spoke while he was on the mount in this beautiful sermon on the mount. Now, it's called Sermon on the Mount. He was not on a mountain like we think of in Colorado, but he was on a hill, and they called it a mount, kind of a hill, and which Jesus was then addressing those that would become and were desiring to be his disciples. Jesus was on a mission at this particular point in the passage in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, in which he was not only seeking to expand his kingdom and enlarge it with disciples, but he was educating his disciples of what it meant to follow him. And if this is a message we need today, more than any other message, this is it. But I think there's a lot of confusion as to what it means to be a disciple of Christ. And in these passages, in these three very beautiful chapters, we discover where Jesus is somewhat turning over all of the concepts of religious practice in his day. Isn't it interesting how things sort of cycle themselves back into reality? We think we attack an issue and we defeat this issue and we sort of put it behind us, but it has a tendency in our culture to sort of sneak its way back around to the things that we, we thought we had overcome. And today I think this is relevant for us because I think there are more people that are practicing religion without a relationship than in any other time in the history of the church. And Jesus is confronting that very issue. For he is suggesting to them in this beautiful passage that it is more about relationship and less about an exterior practice that's not as a result of an overflow that has already taken place in one's heart. What do I mean by that? That means there is a practice here without a heart change. In other words, there was an, an aspect of, in which religion was a societal thing in which people were outwardly practicing some of the principles of the scriptures and there were some who were disciples who were seeking to practice the teachings of Christ without really genuinely committing to him and his lordship over their lives. They were seeking to do without becoming. They were seeking to practice without transformation. And Jesus is suggesting here very strongly that if we hope to become his disciples, there has to be a transformation on the inside of the heart where the heart, first of all, is changed, it's renewed, it's purified because of the work of the Spirit of Christ, and then that then becomes the overflow of that which we practice. It's not about practicing a, a bunch of things without a relationship because that really doesn't work at all. And Jesus is going to address that in this passage. He's saying righteousness without regeneration is not righteousness at all. And so we're going to take a look at that. But before we do, in these next weeks, if not months, as we see how Jesus is addressing this topic with many, many issues that we have, I think that are very relevant today, not only for the family, but for friendships and for the fellowship of the church, I want us to recognize the importance of this day because the Bible does say, honor thy father and mother and your days will be long. How many of us want to live long lives? Anybody want to go today? Okay. I think all of us would like to live long lives if it's a healthy life, right? Right. 
And uh, so we want to honor our mothers today. And so we're going to look at a passage as we sort of begin this journey in 5, 6, and 7 of this beautiful Sermon on the Mount with this incredible text that most of us know, and we've studied this on Mother's Day before. It's a passage found in Timothy. So if you'll change the screen, I want to take a look at this incredible passage because here we see this this beautiful passage about the Apostle Paul who is very familiar with this family in Galatia that he knows well. Uh, He has visited Galatia two different times on his missionary journey, the first missionary journey that he went to. More than likely, this grandmother and mother came to faith in Christ. Now in his second missionary journey, he returns back to Galatia, and he finds that this grandmother and this mother have passed over the faith to their son and grandson. And now the faith that was in the grandmother and the mother is now the faith that is also in the child. And the question I have for us is, where would we be without the faith of our mothers today? For if there ever was a void in the family today, there, was, there is a void in the family today of fathers of faith. But I'm convinced there are more mothers and grandmothers who are of the faith than there are fathers. And were it not for our mothers of faith, the influence and the impact of our lives, many of us would not be in the faith today. And so let's honor grandmothers and mothers and those who have been impacted by the faith of their mothers. So, first of all, we're going to take a little spin on what's not in the text. If you're a great-grandmother, now, great-grandmother of faith, would you stand? If you're a great-grandmother of faith, now, great-grandmother, all right? (laughs) Remain standing if you would, great-grandmothers, if you can, all right? Now, if you're a grandmother of faith, would you stand? If you're a mother of faith, would you stand? Now, here, here's something interesting. If you are a child who is a product of the impact of your great-grandmother, grandmother, or your mother's faith, would you join us in standing? You know, the impact of a mother's faith is huge. And we are grateful for you moms, you mothers, grandmothers, and great-grandmothers. And we want to honor you today on this, your very special day. And as you leave in just a little bit, you're going to go out the door, and there will be some ushers who are going to hand you a rose. And so we want all mothers, grandmothers, and great-grandmothers to leave with a rose today. And all the thorns have been removed, so don't worry about it. And uh, as you go on your way home today, I hope that your family honors you But more importantly, we want to honor the faith of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in your life. So let's all stand in honor of God's word together. And let's read 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3 through 7. Notice what the text says. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith. A faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. God, we stand in honor of your word today. We thank you for this word of encouragement where a young man named Timothy was given a heritage like Moses that we studied last week. How important it is for the parents to be parents of faith And how their faith then sort of spills over and overflows onto the life of the children. And I thank you for the mothers, the grandmothers, and the great-grandmothers today who had sincere faith and who lived out their faith. Not perfectly, not flawlessly, but, but humanly, yet graciously they sought to live out the lives that you have called them to live. And they set the example, they exemplified the faith and the lives that they lived. And as a result of not only their testimony through their lives, but also through their lips, the children that you gave them were impacted by that faith. And I pray, God, that you would be with every mother in this room today. 
that you would graciously bestow upon them all of the grace and all the mercy and all the love that mothers need and how thankful we are for how you've impacted our lives through them. God, I pray that you would now use the text as we study this introductory um, study on the Sermon on the Mount and that we want to please you. And we, we hear your challenge today in the text about a sincere faith, a faith without hypocrisy, a faith without guile. Not a faith that's perfect, but one that relies upon grace and yet is seeking to live out the fullness of the blessing that's ours through faith and knowledge of Jesus Christ. So Lord, use this opportunity to disciple us and strengthen us in that faith. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Please be seated. If you take a look at the, uh, the screen up here, we're going to notice that we're going to see an invitation. Christ is going to conclude the last part of his, of his sermon today in an invitation. How many of you have ever started a book, and uh, maybe it's an assignment at school, but you wanted to read the end of the book before so that you could sort of save yourself some nervous anticipation about its ending? Anybody ever done that? Several of us. Uh, That's always a good thing to do sometimes. It it creates less anxiety as you're reading it. But that's not the reason why we're going to look at the last aspect of the Sermon on the Mount today in this beautiful message in which Jesus has simply spoken it to those who want to be and desire to be his disciples. The reason we're going to do that is because as we study this, we're going to have to lay four cornerstones in order to, to anchor them deep into the bedrock of our faith so that as we lay a foundation and then build upon that foundation and seek to live out the principles and the precepts that God has in this text, we, we need to lay these foundations because they will be instrumental, if not key, to helping us do exactly that. Because if we read these without these four cornerstones, I think they will simply become just simply words. Or maybe they'll just become practices that really won't have the significant impact that I believe Jesus wanted them to have in our lives. So we're going to look at four cornerstones. Now, we're only going to scratch the surface today. We're not going to go in depth. We will visit these passages at the conclusion of our study. But as we scratch the surface, as we take a look at these four cornerstones, I want us to understand that Jesus is giving us today in this study, as we begin this journey, an invitation to authentic discipleship. Now, there are a lot of people that claim to be disciples, We live in Wichita in a religious community. You want me to say that again? We live in a religious community. It's not always about faith. I think many aspects about the many churches that we have in Wichita, it's mostly about religion. A religion that's void of an intimate relationship with Christ that is doctrinally sound and relationally correct. But we had a lot of practice of religion in this city. I read the other day that we are uh, on the the number top scale in Wichita uh, in regard to selling of religious paraphernalia or religious books. I mean, we're on the top of the charts, uh, and and we're way higher up in in the business of religious things than many cities three or four times our size. I mean, we're a great market for religious commodities. Why is that? And yet we live and we walk in a city that's really no different than any other city. And we have people that are filling churches today that are religious in their practice, but yet know nothing about the relationship and the righteousness of Christ in a life transformational concept. And so we want to take a look at this text. So what is authentic discipleship? What does it mean to be a disciple? And if I were to ask you that question, I think many of us in this room would probably have many definitions of what a disciple is. But a disciple is simply, in the simplest definition of terms, a pupil or a student or a follower of someone else. And in Jesus' ministry in his day, he had various degrees of discipleship. We, we see the disciples, and most of us think of the word disciple, and we reference the disciple as the twelve right? The 12 disciples, the one Jesus selected and he educated and he trained and he brought. Those are the inner circle. We would all admit that those are disciples. There's another sphere of of commitment just outside of that, that 
the inner circle, but then there's an outer circle a little bit closer connected, and those are the people that have been transformed by the grace of Christ. They have accepted him as their Savior, and he's transformed their lives and changed them from a life of completely being engulfed by sin into a life of righteousness through faith in him, like Mary Magdalene. And then there are those just on the outside of those who are disciples, and these are the ones who more than likely have not made a full commitment of their life and faith and trust in Jesus, yet they're interested in his teachings because they know they have value. They're not really interested in a relationship, but they're interested in what he has to say because they're wanting to practice those because they see him as a prophet, they see him as a teacher, but they've never recognized him for who he really is. And then there are those on the outer fringe that might consider themselves disciples and they're not interested in his teachings. They're just there for the circus. They're there for the show. They're there to see the miraculous things and to benefit from those somehow in their lives. So there are various degrees of what we might consider to be disciples then and today. So as we take a look at this study through 5, 6, and 7 of the gospel according to Matthew, let's understand what it means to be authentic disciples followers of Christ. Now, what are the four cornerstones as we take a look at them? The first cornerstone that we see in the text is sincere faith will always investigate and it will then discern the truth. Genuine, authentic discipleship always investigates and discerns truth. A disciple of Jesus is always interested in what is true and always rejects what is untrue. In other words, we're looking for the truth, and the truth comes from the words of Christ and from the word of God, and that then becomes the anchor of our faith that leads us and guides us in day-to-day decisions and life choices as we seek to follow the Lord. We're investigating and discerning what is true because like then as well as today, if not in the early church, the church is being bombarded by things that are virtually not a part of the word of God being claimed as eternal truth. And many believers are buying into those false truths and anchoring their lives on them and are being very disappointed in the outcome. Notice what Jesus says. Again, we're going to scratch the surface and come back later. Notice what the verse says. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? Are figs then from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit, and the healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. He's saying to those of us who who want to be disciples, we must be alert to the truth, but we must also be alert to those who would propagate or who would propose that which is untrue. In other words, there are false prophets, false teachers. These, These people here are presently among them during the teaching of Jesus. They will be with the church later on in Colossians and Colossians and in other places in the New Testament in the book of Acts. We will see again and again and again that as the church is being formed and as it begins to grow and as the Spirit of God begins to move, the enemy always raises up those that would counter the truth of God by, by facing it with a lie. And he says to them, they, they are false prophets. He describes them as wolves. Wolves do what? They look for the weak link, and they attack the weakest, not the strongest, and that's how they penetrate, and that's how they get their way into the flock or to the fold. We've got a group of of, uh, coyotes in my neighborhood, and we always know when they celebrate a kill. You ever heard them? They sound like whining babies. You know what I mean? And it's annoying. (laughs) And if I didn't live in a neighborhood, I'd get one of my guns and I'd go out there and take care of those suckers because I'm tired of hearing them. Is it against the law to kill them in, in the county? I, I don't know. I, maybe I need to investigate that. But I'm tired of hearing them, and it sounds like they're in my backyard all the time. I don't have that much living things in my backyard to feed a pack of, of, uh, of animals like that, but apparently they're having a field day in my neighborhood. You see, wolves 
are vicious, aren't they? And they tack in packs. And the ultimate outcome of their desire, notice their plan is to mislead, to misguide, to misrepresent, and to miscommunicate truth. For what purpose? Why would they do that? Notice the purpose, because they're ravenous bulls. They want to devour, they want to destroy, they want to defeat and to to tear down those who are of the faith. They're enemies of the devil, and he says, be alert to them, be actively involved. Don't be passive-aggressive, don't sit back and relax, but he says, be aware, be active in the process, recognize them by their fruit. Remember when I was growing up in Brazil, we had what we call a real marketplace, in which uh, farmers and vendors would come into a certain time of the week into a certain street, and they would send up their little, little areas. And my mother would take us as children in Brazil, and we'd walk through the street of all these vendors. I mean, it'd be several blocks of them, and, and we would we'd buy fruit and vegetables that were fresh off the farm. And I remember her teaching us how to tell good fruit from bad fruit. Do you do that when you go to Dillon's or wherever you buy food? Do you examine the fruit? Do you feel it? Come on. Do you pick it up and kind of squeeze it a little bit? What are you doing? You're deciding whether or not you're going to put it in your basket or not. And if it's too firm, do you pick it up? Do you? You do? Personal preference. If it's too soft, do you pick it up? Why? Probably not what you want. You know, sometimes you go to the banana section, and they're so green that it takes several weeks for them to turn the right color. But sometimes you'll go, and you'll see some that have already turned. And while those bananas that have turned make great banana nut bread, they're not very good to eat, are they, by themselves? To be fruit inspectors. How do you examine the fruit of false prophets to tell whether or not they're true or false? The fruit of the Spirit. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Ephesians 5 verse 9 talks about the fruit of the Spirit being righteousness and being truth. In Galatians 5, we see that the fruit of the Spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control. That's not the right order, but I think that's all nine. Get the tape and make sure that I got them all right. To examine and to look at a person and to watch how they live, to watch the fruit in their own lives, but also to examine and to watch the fruit in the lives of those who follow their teachings. To examine the fruit. But not only should we recognize them by their fruit, but we're to reject that which they are propositioning to us. We are to reject the influence of their teachings so that we ourselves not become bad fruit. And live lives that are not becoming of Christ's followers. But he says not only be alert, be active, but he says be aware of the consequences of those who teach those things. And be aware of those who embrace those kind of teachings. For the Bible is, is very, very clear to us in that it says that not many of us should become teachers. Why? Because those of us who become teachers are going to be judged more harshly than those who are not teachers. Why? Because we're going to be held accountable for that which we teach. So we have an accountability as teachers, and you, if you teach, to teach that which is true. Not personal opinion, but that which is true. And it's not only to live the truth, but to teach the truth. But those of us who are listening for truth have a responsibility then to live out that which is true. For if we don't, we will then pursue and live out a lie, and the end result will be that we will become stench with rottenness and unrighteousness in our own lives. 2 Timothy talks about that. Let me just read it for you, and let me just tell you what it says. And it's intro- you, you turn to your Bible there real quick. We got time for that. I'm, I'm way ahead of where I need to be. But in James chapter 3, just, just go, to, go to 1 Timothy 4. 1 Timothy 4. James chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Every Sunday morning when I stand up here, I, find, I stand up here with, true, with fear and trepidation that, that what I'm teaching is true. And I do the research and the study to make sure that it's true. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, notice what it says. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, in latter times, notice what happens. Some will depart from the faith by devouring themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Notice that. 
Some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons through the insincerity of the liars whose consciousness are seared. Flip over now to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Take a look at this text, 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 5. 2 Timothy 3, 1, 5. But understand this, Paul writing to young Timothy, that in the last days there would come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, notice this, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid, he says, such people. Skip on down to chapter 4 of 2 Timothy. Same same book, same letter. Beginning with verse 1, it says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, prove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure, notice what it says, sound doctrine. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Is that happening today? Are we... In the end times, I believe we are. We have the most self-centered, most egotistical, most self-absorbed church that the church has ever seen in its history. And we are on the verge, I think, of the return of Christ because of the condition of the church. And we need to be aware, it says, of false teachers. And those of us who are disciples need to be discerning for that which is true and reject that which is not true. Number two, sincere faith not only investigates and discerns truth, but it involves more than lip service. It involves more than lip service. Notice what he says. Not everyone who says, Jesus says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Notice their confession. Again, we're just going to scratch the surface here. We're not going to go in depth, but we'll later. But notice their confession. They're calling Jesus Lord, Lord. What does Lord mean? It means you are the master, you are the leader, you're the CEO, you're the commander-in-chief of my life. You call the shots. You determine what I see, what I say, what I hear, where I go, what I do, what I become. I'm following you. You're the leader. You're the Lord. You're, you're setting the pace, and I'm stepping where you step. I am living where you're living. I know who you are, and I'm following you. Well, they called him Lord to his face. That was their confession. The audacity of these people. The Jesus who knows their hearts and knows their condition and knows the relationship, they call him Lord, Lord. Notice their claim, though. We must know you. Why? Because we've done supernatural things. We've done supernatural things. Did you know that the Antichrist is going to persuade many away from the faith because of his ability to do supernatural things? We've studied Moses on Wednesday nights. Did you know in our study of Moses, we learned that when Moses went and, and he, he performed those supernatural things that God told him to do, for example, with a staff, and he put the staff down, at least Aaron did, and it turned into a snake, and he picked it back up and became a staff again, that his magicians were able to duplicate the same thing. There is a demonic power that can camouflage, that can appear to be supernatural, and it is, but it's not of the Lord. And these people have done supernatural things supposedly into the, in the name of God. And you would think, why would they do that? Well, there's a lot of reasons. We're going to explain to that when we get to here. I think pride is one of the main reasons, but we'll get there later on. 
Take us a couple of weeks to get there, so hang on. But notice the condemnation of Christ. He says, I never knew you. Why is that? Because righteousness is not just something we confess. Righteousness comes from a right relationship with God, from a heart that is righteous, a heart that has been transformed by faith in Christ and the grace gracious work of the spirit of the lord and it's that righteousness that then overflows into the acts that we perform righteousness is by faith alone not by any act or action on our part what you do doesn't make you saved again and go back to the introduction what i do is a result of my salvation the way i practice my faith is a result of the transformation that's already taken place in my heart I don't do that in order to prove my salvation, but it's an overflow of my heart. These people obviously had a confession. They called him Lord, Lord, and yet even though in all their miraculous things that they did, he says, I never knew you. And we have many today, many today who profess and confess to be Christians, to be disciples, to be Christ's followers, and he says to them, I never knew you. For it is possible to someone to practice the teachings of Christ and even to perform miraculous things and to have never known Jesus their whole lives and then stand before him only to hear, I never knew you. But, but wait, 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 wait. I went to church every Sunday. I gave my tithe. I gave to the greater things. I, I taught Sunday school. I preached every Sunday at Emmanuel Baptist Church. I'm sorry. I never knew you. No, I never knew you. See, discipleship is more than just lip service. You know, I can't stand in my garage. I can't stand in my garage and say, I'm a car, 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 and be a car, can I? Can I do that? Let me invite you to do that when you go home this afternoon. Stand in your garage and say, I'm a whatever kind of car you want. You want a Mercedes-Benz? I don't know. I'd like to have a new truck when I, one of these days. I'm not sure what I'm going to get. I know Andy's already laughing over there. We've been, I've been talking about it anyway. Bob, don't say anything, okay? Just keep it to yourself. I'm not going to say, I'm a truck, I'm a truck, I'm a truck. <laughs> And then all of a sudden, I'm like, why is that? That's ridiculous, man. That is insanity. If, if I did that, you would lock me up, wouldn't you? And some of you would take great pleasure in that. I know you would. Yeah, and throw away the key. And you'd love to put me on medication anyway. Yeah, he didn't at first. <laughs> there are some people, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christ follower. I, you're Lord, you're Lord, you're Lord, you're Lord. And then he says, I never knew you. You see, sincere faith involves more than lip service. Number three, sincere faith includes a foundational change. There's a structural change. There's a foundational change. There's an element in which we anchor our faith on. And that's described for us now in the next verse. He said, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like the wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and the beat on that house and it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock and the rock is Jesus and his word and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it there's a preface here in this introductory thing before we get to the parable that the authority is Jesus He's the authority, he's he's the CEO, he is the contractor, the author of the word is Christ and they are his words and he's inviting us to accept them, he's inviting us to receive them and to stake our lives on them by obeying them. Now notice in the parable though, he talks about two men, what do they have in common? They're building the same type of structure, they're both building a life, they're both building a home, they're both building a family, they're both building a career, they're both wanting success and they're both wanting prosperity, they're both wanting, and not prosperity in a bad sense, but they want to be be. They want to make a difference. 
Notice they both also have built somewhat in the same general area, maybe like Wichita. Some of our areas are more sandy soil than others. I remember when I built my house in Santa Fe, New Mexico, uh, we had to... Uh, we had to put some footings before we laid the foundation because the, the soil there, when it gets wet, it turns to a clay and your house will just move if, if you don't have the anchors in them with these, these footings. And so where you build and how you build with the soil where you are, some of you live in very sandy places. Some of us have that good old Wichita black stuff that just, man, when it's wet and it sticks to you, it's hard to get off right? But notice what their choices were. You have described for us a wise man who received the the Lord and who received his word and who followed that, that instruction that the Lord gave him to build his life, his family, his home, his business, He did everything as the Lord invited him to do. But notice there's a foolish guy who's described here. This foolish guy rejected Christ as his general contractor. He rejected the words. He would not follow, refused to follow the words that the Lord gave him. And and, and then he reached for something else. We don't know where he went and what he used, but he had to have used some sort of plan from someone else to build his life and his family upon. And he reached for something else. But notice While there were two choices, there are two different consequences to the end result. What they have in common is the flood hit both of them. The the storms came to both homes. You know, if you think that you follow Christ and you've been promised a life of easy street and nothing bad's going to happen to you, you're going to wake up in in a really bad place one of these days and think, you know, God, where are you and why am I here? Because just because we're Christ's followers and we're, we're believers in Jesus and we're saved doesn't mean that, that storms aren't going to come, that hardships aren't going to hum, come, that trials and tribulation and temptations and these things aren't going to hit us. They will. They hit both of these guys. But the difference was the foundation. The wise who, who built his house upon Jesus, the rock, stood the test of time while the one who built his house on the sinking sand, the world's views and the world's concepts and the world's psychology and all of this other stuff, this human thing, what happened to it in the long term? It fell. It didn't last. You know, whether you're building your marriage on what? Are you building it on the word? Are you building on Oprah's Oprah's book? I I went to Starbucks the other day and Oprah's got a got a got a drink in Starbucks. Lord, help us. We have a a culture that's looking for help, but they're looking for help in all the wrong places. It's not a question is, will your marriage have troubled times? It's going to have troubled times. Where do you go to anchor your marriage and anchor your faith to help you make the right choices and to follow the Lord. It's not a matter of if your children are going to have some trouble along the way as you're rearing these kids, these beautiful little kids up here. The, the worst thing is the diaper, man, I'm, I'm telling you. And as they get older, it's going to be the diaper until they're out of diapers. And most parents will praise God they're out of diapers. But then you got to get the, the other things down with the diaper, you know what I'm saying? But anyway, and just because they become teenagers doesn't mean that's over either. Where are you going to go for parenting skills? Where are you going to go when all of a sudden you get to senior adult age and you go into the doctor and after some tests that doctor tells you you've got some challenge ahead of you physically? Where do you go for that? Where's your rock? Where's your foundation? Where's your faith? They're going to come. They're going to happen to all of us. And yet if we have the right foundation, we'll stand. Lastly, I want you to look at the fourth and final bedrock, and that is it invites us to the lordship of Christ. Sincere faith invites us to the lordship of Christ. Notice the conclusion of this beautiful writing filled by the Holy Spirit. Matthew says, and when Jesus finished these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. 
When Jesus started, there was a handful of disciples. By the time he gets through, there's a large crowd there. I don't know if you notice anything or know anything about the Sermon on the Mount, but he started with a small group, and the, and the group grew. It's kind of like in here on Sunday mornings. We start at 1045, and there's hardly any of us in here, and most of us in here up here look out there and go, is anybody coming today? And then by the time, you know, closer to 11 o'clock, you guys get around here. So being tardy for worship is not a new thing. Okay. But we do start at 1045. Anyway. <laughs> but the crowd, what is their response? They were astonished. They were so perplexed and, and so caught up that they were able, not, they were unable to, to make sense of it. They were, they were amazed. That was their reaction. That was their response. But they didn't commit to Christ. That was their response. They were amazed, but they didn't commit. We have disciples who want to be amazed without commitment. They want to be wowed without devotion. They're in, in it for something and everything other than being totally and completely sold out to the Lordship of Christ, which is what he says in the last verse, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Jesus was revealing his identity to them. He said, they're my words. He was putting himself on an equal plane with, with God. And he's saying, not only am I the son of God, but I am co-equal with God. I reign and I rule with God. But notice also he talks about his authority. Whether or not Jesus Christ is the authority of your life and my life. And that is, in essence, the question as we begin this series of studies. Is he the authoritative figure in your life? Does he call all the shots? Does he dictate and determine what you do with your time, your talent, your treasure, your marriage, your children, your home, your business, every aspect of your life? Does he call the shots? If he doesn't, you're not a genuine, authentic, sincere disciple, are you? Now, we're not talking about perfection here because none of us in this room are perfect. That is, with the exception of myself. I've mastered it all. And Jesus is Lord of every area of my life. <laughs> not. But it doesn't mean that he isn't Lord and this process of making him Lord isn't a constant pursuit of those who want to make him Lord and who seek to make him everything in their life. You know, I don't have to tell you moms that uh, motherhood is a tough thing. Let me close with this. It takes a lot of commitment to be a mother. Amen, moms? Listen to this. You know you're a mom when you're up each night until 10 p.m. vacuuming, dusting, wiping, washing, drying, loading, unloading, shopping, cooking, driving, flushing, ironing, sweeping, picking up, changing sheets, changing diapers, bathing, helping, and homework, paying bills, budgeting, clipping coupons, folding clothes, putting to bed, dragging out of bed, brushing, chasing, buckling, feeding them, not you, plus swinging, playing baseball, bike riding, pushing trucks, cuddling dolls, rollerblading, basketball, football, catch, bubbles, sprinklers, slides, nature walks, coloring, crafts, jumping, rope, plus raking, trimming, planting, edging, mowing, gardening, painting, and walking the dog. You get up at 5.30 a.m. and you have no time to eat, sleep, drink, or go to bed, go to the bathroom. And yet, you're ready for the, here's the punchline, and yet, you still manage to gain 10 pounds. I've never known any woman that's happy with her weight. None of us would argue the commitment of motherhood. It takes a lot of commitment to be a mom. It takes a greater commitment to be a follower of Christ. And sometimes I think they could be called equally the same. 
Mothers make great disciples. You know why? Because they know what it means to live a selfless life. And we, if we are to be committed Christ followers, need to learn how to live a selfless life. We, in the moment we placed our faith and trust in Christ, recognized our sin, realized that he was the solution of that sin, we received Christ into our hearts, placed our faith in him as our Savior, and repented from our sin and turned toward him and committed to follow him to pick up our cross, to die to self, to enthrone him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords of our lives, takes great commitment. It takes a lifetime of practicing that commitment. And there are times when we are going to blow it, and sometimes when we blow it, we'll blow it big time. But isn't it great to know that 1 John 1, 9 comes to play? That if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But through repentance, there's always reconciliation. There's always renewal. There's always a restoration. And we can go at it again. We're not talking about perfection. But we're talking about a genuine practice that reflects heart change. What kind of disciple are you? Let's pray. Please be seated. We're going to have a wonderful opportunity. We do this a couple of times a year, and this is one of the times of the year that, that we always want to recognize not only motherhood, but also the gift of life. And God has gifted us with two beautiful children we're going to dedicate today, and we're going to join the parents and their family as we dedicate them unto the Lord. These uh, children come in waves. And so we have a very small wave, but uh, we know there have been many in the past, and there are some coming up in the future but today is a special day for these two families and these two lives that God has entrusted to these families. So we're going to celebrate and recognize them today. So let's do that. Good morning. My name is Janelle, and I'm the early childhood director here at Emmanuel. And during our um, parent-child dedication. This is a special time for these families as they come before you and they come before God and they are committing themselves to raising their children according to God's word, the Bible, and to be praying for these little ones and that they will accept Christ at a really young age and commit their lives to him and that they will be dedicated completely to him. The first family we have today, we have Mitchell Donovan Whitaker. He was born December 16, 2013. His parents are Michael and Alicia Whitaker. He has a big brother, Isaiah, a big sisters, Liliana, Michael, and Michael. The verse that they have chosen for him is James 1:17. Every good thing and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shifting shadows. Next, we have Emily Reese Willard. She was born March 18th, 
2014. Her parents are Matt and Christy Willard, and her grandparents are Larry and Tracy Bodley, and Mike and Lori Willard. She has a big sis, Avery, that loves to love on her. The verse they have chosen for her is Colossians 2.7. Let your roots grow down deep into him and drop nourishment from him so you will grow in faith, strong and vigorous in the truth you were taught. Let your lives overflow with thanksgiving for all he has done. All right, parents, are you ready to join me as we come before the Father and dedicate yourselves as parents and your child to the Lord? All right, will you commit to seek to live in such a way that your child will witness in you a consistent, not perfect pattern of the Christian life which will serve for him, her, as an incentive to live for Christ Jesus? Will you commit to teach your child about his or her need to accept Christ as Savior and Lord? Will you in love put the spiritual and moral welfare of your child above all selfish and personal considerations? I'm going to stop there for a minute. <laughs> knowing that you are accountable to God. Will you strive to pray for your child that God might be glorified in and through his and her life now and for all eternity? Church, it's our time now to commit with them this wonderful opportunity and this blessed privilege that we have to unite and to join with them in this occasion. You will see these children more than likely running through the hall. Maybe at some point they might run you over almost. Maybe you'll see them in life group, maybe in Awana, maybe in children's choir. Maybe you'll have an opportunity in vacation Bible school to minister to them and teach them God's work. And so this is our opportunity as a congregation to unite with these parents and grandparents as we dedicate ourselves to the Lord. So congregation, do you as members of the church promise to pray for these parents and join them in teaching and training these children that they may be led in due time to trust Christ as their Savior and then confess Him in baptism and church membership? And everybody said? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the joy that is ours to celebrate life. You are the author of life. You are the sustainer of life, and you gave life through these parents to these beautiful children. And I pray that as they lift them up to you, as generations have done in the past, that you would receive the life of these children and that you would bless them with your presence and your grace. I pray, God, that you would begin right now to continue to mold in them the time and the purpose for which you have for their lives. Use them, God, for your glory. Bless these parents as they do everything they can to live a life that's exemplary of what it means to follow Christ. And in their imperfections, which there will be, I pray that your grace that is more than sufficient will overflow through their lives and impact their children for your glory and for your honor. For it's in Christ's name we pray. And everybody said, amen. amen.